Hey everyone, my name is Paul Eddy, and I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills. If you ever caught one of our Q&A sessions, there's a pretty good chance I was on stage with Greg trying to keep the heresy to a dull roar. Today I'm filling in and making an appeal that Greg would normally do because he was off this weekend. As you may know, we're in the middle of our sustain campaign. Each spring, we ask people who follow along with us in our sermons to consider regular financial support of our ministry. Our goal this year is 400 sustainers. And the good news is, as of today, we're up to 363. You can learn more about this at whchurch.org sustain. Now, we get testimonies all the time from people literally all over the world, and they're really encouraging. I thought it'd be fun to just share a few brief ones with you. Corey in Tennessee says, these are my favorite t-shirts to wear. They always spark great conversations. Sally, who lives in California, said, thank you. We watch the podcast with our home church each Sunday. Uh, hello, Sally and home church. It's really great to have you tuning in. And from Philip over in the UK, Philip says, I just wanted to comment about how worthwhile I think your messages are. It's so rare and refreshing to listen to such constructive messages of peace and goodwill. Thanks to all of you who've sent in notes when you were signing up for Sustain. They're really encouraging, tangible reminders to us of just how blessed we are to be able to connect with so many people around the world. So if you would, please consider signing up for Sustain. You'll get one of those great thank you t-shirts Corey likes so much, and you'll be part of a group that makes it possible for us to share our messages with the world. Again, just go to whchurch.org sustain. Thanks so much for your support. Uh, well, my name is David Morrow. It is a joy to be here with you. We get to dive into the Word together. Uh, we are in week three of the series that we're calling Take Heart. And it's about encouragement. It's about how do we be the kind of people that can encourage in a way that will uplift those around us? How can we be the kind of people that will encourage in a way that will actually breathe life into those that we come into contact with? And the last couple weeks, uh, Greg and Sandra have been kind of getting the stage set for what we're talking about today. But the last couple weeks, they, they've been talking about how, um, you know, it, it's, it's possible to, when you encourage um, to maybe desire to encourage, but your encouragement might not actually be received as encouraging. Has anybody ever received some encouragement? Um, and, and then uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Sandra was talking about this, this tendency that we can have to avoid the difficult conversation or the listening ears that are needed for encouragement based on our own psychological tendencies to avoid the pain. That we, we, we don't have the maturity to actually sit in another person's pain, so we just try and like railroad over it quickly so we don't have to listen to it, so we don't have to deal with the pain. It, uh, um, it's kind of a dumb analogy, but I'm, uh, I'm kind of lame, so I'm going to use it anyways. Um, like, it's kind of like we, we apply Neosporin to a wound that needs amoxicillin. Anybody have little kids that have ear infections? You know what I'm talking about. Um, so it's like you put the antibacterial stuff on the surface when what's needed is a healing from the inside out. 
And so we want to be the kind of people that give encouragement that heals in deep places but, and doesn't just apply a surface cliche to a deep issue. So what we're going to talk about today is what is the posture and the goal of encouragement and what's the model that God gives us of what encouragement can look like. So uh, uh, the passage we're going to look at today is about nostalgia. And uh, my, my mom and dad were here at the first service and my dad reminded me that his favorite joke around nostalgia is that, you know, nostalgia, it's just not what it used to be. <laughs> Hashtag dad joke. Um, <laughs> love it. All right, so here's my question in order for us to get at this topic is, um, what is a movie from your childhood that you are nostalgic about? A, what's a movie from your childhood that you're nostalgic about? So take like 30 seconds and find somebody around you and let them know what, well, what the movie is that you're nostalgic about from your childhood. <laughs> somebody just said, I can't remember my childhood. <laughs> Love it. All right, so we, we, we need as a community to hear some of them. So, so yell out some of them. E.T.? E. E. Rye Kid? Rye Kid? Karate Kid. Oh, Karate Kid. I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, anybody? What else? Little Rascals? Grease. Yes. We're progressive around here. Um, any other ones? Never Ending Story? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so we're in the third service that I, I've been preaching and nobody's gotten my nostalgic movie. Um, because when I think of the most nostalgic movie from my childhood, I think of this cinematic classic called The Flight of the Navigator. Anybody remember that one? Came out in 1979, shockingly has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, now, here's the thing about this movie. It's a story about this kid who... Um, ends up in this spaceship traveling through time and he's got this like quirky little sidekick of animals that you don't quite know what they are but they just happen to be in the spaceship with him and uh, the the thing about this movie is that I have such vivid memories of watching it as a child like it was the best movie night for me and the mistake that I made was two years ago, my wife and I rewatched this nostalgic movie of my childhood. And I would like to definitively tell you this movie is terrible. It is, I mean, it, it, it literally has no plot. And the acting, um, so they, they, it must have been the only people that showed up for the casting call. Because they were, I mean indescribable worth, but not great acting. Um, but he, this is how nostalgia works. It's like somehow it locks in your brain as positive, and yet maybe when you look back on it, it doesn't hold up. I, um, I, I think it's why, it, it might not be the best analogy to use on Mother's Day, but I think it's why uh, nostalgia is the reason why anybody has more than one child. Like, it's, if you, if you remembered it, you never would have a second. It's, it's this, like, I, confession time just between us, just be, us friends. Um, I, I didn't like any of my children until they were about 18 months old. 
Like, I loved them as a father would love his child. Um, but they were a bother. It's like, I, I just wanted to play golf. Um, but that's how nostalgia works. Like, it, 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 somehow it frees up the mental makeup of our mind to be able to navigate through something that previously um, we might avoid, but we walk into again. And the story we're going to be talking about today is nostalgia. And um, the question that I want us to sit with today is, how does God breathe encouragement and life into a nostalgic moment that doesn't hold up over time? How does he take what is painful, how does he take what is broken and speak encouragement into it in a way that will actually be received as good? And so the story we're going to look at today starts in the book of Ezra. Now, since you all were devotionally reading Ezra this morning, I'm just going to briefly go over the history. But the basic idea is that Ezra was written in the post-exilic time. So, so uh, Israel uh, had a hard time following God, and based on that, they ended up in exile in Babylon. So in 586 BC, the people of Israel end up uh, getting captured by the country of Babylon. So Babylon comes into Jerusalem, they tear down the walls, they burn up the temple, and they take the people as captives and as slaves into exile. It, uh, I was trying to, like, trying to think of how can we picture what this must have felt like to them. It, uh, it, it reminded me of a few weeks ago when many of us were glued to our TV watching the Cathedral of Notre Dame burn. That if you can get your head into the space of what the Jewish people must have been feeling when the, this homeland that they had known for so long that was their promised land from God, they're now being dragged out as slaves while they watch their temple burn behind them. This temple that was the centerpiece of the religious and social life for them as a community for century upon century upon century. And so they're walking out as they watch it burn. And I, I can imagine that as they move into this land of Babylon where they're now captives, the, the, they end up being there for somewhere between 50 to 70 years. And so, so you can imagine that the older folks in the community, they start telling stories to the, to the kids that grow up in Babylon, saying, I know that exile is hard. I know that being a captive is hard. But let me tell you, there is this place called Jerusalem. And that's where our temple is. That's where we worship God. That's where God landed us. And you've got to know that in the midst of captivity, I'm going to bring you back there. That you are going to end up back there. And so decade after decade, the older folks in the community would tell the younger folks, get ready because eventually God's going to redeem us back there. And thank God he did. That, that uh, after about 50 years or so, the first group of the Israelites are freed from Babylon by the Persian Empire. And so they come back to Babylon. And you can imagine they walk, or they come back to Jerusalem from Babylon. You can imagine they walk into the city. These younger folks who've just heard story after story after story. These nostalgic memories of Jerusalem. And they walk into a city whose walls are broken down. They walk into a city whose temple is still black and burnt with ash. You walk into this city where the livestock and the fields are broken down. You walk into this city that has been ravaged by war. And it's not what they thought it would be. And this is where we pick up the story in Ezra chapter 3 verse 6. Where it says, From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. 
but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Because what happened was the first group of people came back in 538 BC and what they did initially was they built an altar um, so they could offer sacrifices to God. But after they did that, the opposition started coming. So they started getting pushed back on them so that that they needed to do things like, um, okay, we need to build our own houses and we need to build a wall to protect us and and we'll we'll have the altar, but we, we don't quite have time to get the temple built yet. And it's actually 18 more years after they've arrived back, before they start um, being subtly reminded by the prophets, you may want to put the temple back in order rather than just focus on your own home. And so it's 18 years later that we get to this next section of text, which is actually only four verses later. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, So now the temple is starting to get built. The priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord and now the band comes together. So they've got trumpets and the Levites have cymbals according to the direction of King David. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And they said, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This is what we've dreamed about for decade upon decade upon decade. But look what it says next. But many of the priests and the Levites and the head of the families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, they wept with a loud voice when they saw this house. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. Can you picture that moment? This community of people, the young community with hopes and expectations of what this could be, and the older part of the community reminiscing about what this was and feeling like it doesn't hold up their nostalgic experience of what this temple was, what this was supposed to feel like didn't fit the reality of what it was. But it begs the question, you've just been freed out of exile, you were captives and now you're not, and yet you're sitting there watching this temple get rebuilt and you're weeping. So the question is why? What are they weeping about? Why can't you just be joyful? I know you lost the job, but you got another one. Why can't you just be joyful? Like, I I know the marriage ended, but you got remarried, so it must be all good, right? There are some things that even in the joy, the sorrow can't be taken away. Like, there are some things that you feel it so deeply, and I think that's what's going on here. Like, I, I, the, I think it's possible that they were navigating the reality that even though they're rebuilding this sacred space, what was will never again be what it is. That, like, it's like when I watch the Cathedral of Notre Dame being burned down, it's like they're going to rebuild it, but it'll never be that again. Like, for people who have had experiences and memories in a sacred space, you know that it's like, yeah, you can rebuild it, but it'll never go back to what it was. Like, uh, I wonder for us in this room, what is your holy ground? What's your sacred space? 
Maybe it's this room for some of you. Like you've had this encounter with God in this space. For, for some of you, maybe it's like a chair in your house you sit in that God has met you. For some, maybe it's a retreat center. For some, maybe it's a, a place you walk in the woods. And it's this reality of what would it feel like if you had to watch that get burned to the ground? If this space was gone? What would it feel like to walk into it after it had been rebuilt? That joy mixed with sorrow, that reality of what was, recognizing it'll never be that again. And I I think that's some of what might have been going on here. But I think the weeping also is calling out the reality that there's a deeper question that the people of Israel were having to face around why was the temple actually important to them? That it was a sacred space, but In essence, it was also this place that was so intertwined with the people's understanding of who they were at at their core, of who their identity was, who their community was, of their sense of status, of like, I am a Jew, I am an Israelite, this is our place of worship, and it's not just a place of worship, like it was built by Solomon who, who had all this gold and all this silver and all this lavishness and opulence, and so, so they built this temple to represent the beauty and the lavishness and opulence of their God, but then when they recognized, they started realizing that they, they've intertwined his lavishness with their own, and what do you do if the temple you're in looks really unimpressive. What does that start saying about you? How how closely intertwined is our understanding of place with our understanding of presence? Like, if, if we're expecting God to show up in this lavish, opulent space, and it shows up looking meager, looking kind of simple, what does that say about who we are? Because no matter what God is trying to teach his people through this, the reality is you have a group of people that are weeping. And the question is, how will God encourage them? What is God's model of encouragement? And this is where we get to dive into one of the minor prophets, which we've heard your cries, more teaching on the minor prophets, so... Here we go. All right. So we're going to look at the book of Haggai. And now Haggai is uh, one of the first post-exilic prophets. And uh, his main job as a post-exilic prophet was to help the people understand how to not go into exile again. So his job is to do that. So he's speaking into the Jewish people. And here's what he says first. He says, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory, which is this Hebrew word kavod, which we'll come back to. How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? And this is the first lesson I think we can learn about how to encourage. That the precursor of encouragement has to start by acknowledging the pain. That if I want to come and encourage you, I can't encourage you and gloss over the reason you're discouraged. Like, if if you are sitting in the muck and the mire of immense pain, I can't just blow you over with say, well, God loves you, he's for you, it must be fine. Like, if we want to acknowledge the reality of the pain and speak life and encouragement into it, we start by saying, I see you. I see the hurt. 
I see the loneliness. I see the pain. I see all the things that Erica's reflection around motherhood can have, the joy, the pain, the goodness. That, that is the first step for how we learn to encourage is to acknowledge the pain. But it's from there that we start to see God's model of encouragement in the words of Haggai. And, and God's model of encouragement has two main steps to it. The first step of God's model of encouragement is that God's model of encouragement is always inspired by love. Because it's possible for our encouragement to be inspired by a lot of other things. Like, I've known people who, they're trying to encourage me, but underneath the encouragement is manipulation. It's like, I'm encouraging you to go buy a gift for your mother. It's like, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, it's this kind of subtle, manipulative encouragement. Or there's some people who, you know, they're inspired to encourage you in order to get you to stop talking because they want to go on with their day. It's like, well, yeah, I heard your pain. You, God bless you. Be encouraged. Now I got to go. It's like, I, but I think what God is trying to emphasize to us is that if you want to encourage you need to first get your head in a place where you can be inspired in love towards that person. And, and, and I love the way that Haggai does this and that God does it through Haggai in the next section. God starts by saying, yet now take courage, which is this Hebrew word hazak, which we talked about a few months ago. Zerubbabel, he's the governor of the city. So take courage, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, the high priest. Take courage, all the people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I'm with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the promises I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. And what I love about this is that God takes a historical approach to his relationship with Israel as a way to remind them that he's inspired by love towards them. That he recognizes that you, I took you out of Egypt. For the people of Israel, and this is being spoken to at the time, that was like seven, eight hundred years ago for their people. And yet God comes to them and says, that same God who redeemed you out of Egypt, not because I was annoyed by you, but because I loved you and I was for you. And these last 700 years, I've loved you and I've been for you. And all that I do is inspired by love towards you. And so he starts by saying, I love you and I am for you. And that is the beginning of God's model of encouragement. But it doesn't end there because the second part of God's model of encouragement is that if we want to encourage, we need to direct our encouragement towards fear. Because it is in the fear that the power ends up coming at us. And so God says, I'm going to be inspired by love and I'm going to direct that encouraging word towards what you are afraid of to free us. And look at how God does this in Haggai. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so the treasure of the nations will come, and I will fill this house with splendor, which again is this word kavod, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. Don't worry about the lavishness of Solomon's temple. The latter splendor, the latter kavod, what is to come of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity. 
Do you hear the fear that God is speaking into? He's speaking to the Israelite people saying, I know that you are afraid that God won't show up. I know that you are afraid that you're alone. I know that you're afraid that you think nostalgia is going to be the last word on this. I know that you're afraid that things will never get better. I know that you are afraid that your generation will be the one that just ruins this whole thing. And yet God comes in the midst of that and says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That is creation language. That God is saying, I'm going to breathe a new creation in this place. I'm going to start a new exodus in this place to such an extent that what was the opulence, the lavishness, the glory of the former temple will not hold a finger to what I'm going to do. It is this immense reminder from the God of the universe that even though you were in exile and you still feel like you're in exile, I'm not done with you yet. And so God shows up and says, my splendor will be greater in what is to come than what was, which is this Hebrew word kavod, which, which just means the weightiness of God, the weighty presence of God, which I love that word, but I, but I love even more the, the, the word that, that the rabbinical writers would use for this same word. They had another word for kavod, for glory. They had this word shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God, which is a whole different type of glory. And uh, look at the way Eugene Peterson defines what this word means. He says, Shekinah is a word that is understood as a light disseminating presence. It broadcasts, it spreads, it publicizes, it propagates, bringing an awareness of God to a time and a place where God is not expected to be. A place. It's not a public spectacle but more a selective showing at God's discretion to encourage, to affirm, to reveal a reality of something we do not yet have eyes to see. We do not yet have eyes to see. And so God comes and says, I'm going to breathe what is good. I'm going to bring a new glory that you didn't even know could exist in this place. And I think what it highlights in many ways is the danger of living in nostalgia, of living in the good old days of, we remember the good old days, right? The good old days when people would bring a physical Bible to church, bunch of heathens here looking up on a screen without their Bible. Remember the good old days when, you know, God was the center of America? Remember the good old days when kids would respect their parents? Those were the good old days, right? The problem with the good old days is that we forget the reason we left them. That the good old days when people brought their Bible to church, I remember that growing up, and the reason I brought it was because if I didn't, I got in trouble. That the reason sometimes we did some of those things was based on legalistic reasons. Or remember the good old days when, you know, God was the center of America? Back in those days when even more rampant than today, racism and bigotry and misogyny ran like crazy. But those were the good old days, right? Or the good old days when kids respected their parents out of fear, <laughs> not out of love. 
And if that was true for us, our tendency to live in nostalgia, how much more must that have been true for the Israelites who were thinking, gosh, remember the good old days when the glory of God was filling the temple and we were in Jerusalem and we had this lavish temple filled with silver and gold and inlaid wood and it was, it was opulent. And in, in that memory, they forgot the injustice, the legalism, the corrupt leadership and the idolatry that led to exile. They forgot all the things. And so it's, it's as if in the midst of our tendency to live in the past, God promises that that Shekinah glory, that light disseminating glory of God will actually show up in this humble, modest, makeshift, sorry excuse of a temple. That he can show up and that that place was home, not because of what the place was, but because God was there. And that he was going to show up in a way that would make the other one look very insignificant. And I wonder, where do we need the reminder for ourselves that our meager, half-hearted, pathetic attempts at faithfulness can actually be met by the very presence of God? Where do we need the reminder that our meager, half-hearted, pathetic attempts at faithfulness, God says, yeah, I can use that. Where do we need the reminder that it's in our weakness, it's in our incompetencies, it's in our inadequacies, it's in our failings and our deceptions that God wants to remind us that I can show up in that temple, that you don't need to have it all put together for me to show up there. And what's amazing is that the temple that got rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Joshua and the community, that one got destroyed too. And you know what God said? I'm not done yet. And he said, I can build a new temple. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about that new temple. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That that same temple that God said, my Shekinah glory, my light disseminating presence would show up there, he says, I want to put in you. That the, it says that God will dwell there. And this word Shekinah comes from this root word Shekhan, which means to dwell. That God says this temple is going to be put in you and the same glory that could not compare with the previous temple. Can you imagine how much more it's not going to compare when it shows up in you? When we start living out the beauty of the kingdom of God. And what's amazing is that this Shekinah glory that has been put in you has been put in you for a purpose. It's been put in you for a purpose in order to breathe life and encouragement into the communities you are in. That God says, I have a purpose. And I love that this, this word Shekinah, it's actually a relational term. That, that in the rabbinic text, there's this verse that says, where two or three are gathered around Torah, my Shekinah glory shows up. And then Jesus takes that and reinterprets it. And Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, in Jesus' name, there I am in your midst. So it's as if God is saying, in order to be inspired by love, in order to direct your encouragement towards fear, you got to know each other. Like, I can't point out the fear that needs encouragement in you if I don't know you, which is why the community of God requires relationship. It requires that we know each other well enough to actually speak truth into our half-hearted, meager, pathetic attempts at following God. Because we need a community that can imitate the encouragement of God. So I wonder today, 
Um, who in your life needs some encouragement? Might be you that needs a reminder that God's not done with you yet. It might be your mom on Mother's Day. It might be your kids. It might be your neighbor. It might be your coworker. I've had the, the blessing of uh, doing teaching and speaking uh, in a variety of places, whether it's the place where I work at Union Gospel Mission or uh, in places like this or in a university for the last 15 years or so. And uh, um, I remember it was about two and a half years ago that uh, was the first time I was asked to speak here. And I remember when Greg asked me, it was the most fear and anxiety-inducing ask I had ever received. Because y'all are my people. This is my community. This is my church. And I, I, I had so much fear that I couldn't do it. I had so much anxiety that this is too big for me. It's too intimidating for me. How do you fill those shoes? How do you walk in that? And, and so I remember the moment where I reluctantly told Greg, sure, I'm really excited to do that. And... Uh, and yet thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. What business do I have standing up here? And I remember that first weekend, I finished preaching after this service, and I remember I'm putting my notes away, and before I could even get my notes put back together, two people jumped on the, up on the stage next to me. The first was a guy named Paul Eddy, who's one of our teaching pastors here, and another was some guy named Greg Boyd, and they, they jumped up on the stage and they looked at me in the eye and they said, David, you nailed it. They said, David, the spirit was moving. They said, well done. And if, if you have never spent time in other churches to recognize the reality of the two main teaching voices at our church walking up to somebody else filling the pulpit and encouraging them in what they're doing and saying, keep going, don't stop. Like, if you don't get how radical that is, you, thank God, because you haven't been around enough churches. But there is, it, like, that is what encouragement looks like. It is being inspired by love, not by fear or a sense of territorialism. It is inspired by love, but recognizing where my fears were. And immediately jumping up to say, you got to know in the face of that fear, let me tell you what's true. Let me encourage you with what's true. And that is what God is calling us to do, that no matter the makeshift, modest, sorry excuse for a temple that I am, and I know a lot of you, that you are too, um, <laughs> no matter what that external veneer looks like, no matter the scenario, no matter the situation, no matter the disillusionment of the present or the nostalgia of the past, the one thing that God is calling us to do is in the face of all of our expectations of what it could look like, God is calling us to expect God. Yeah. Expect that he will show up and he will show up in our sorry excuse for a temple and that that's enough. That we don't need more than that because God says, I will be in your midst. My Shekinah glory that was there will show up in you and that God wants you to, to use you to do this for others. And I want to implore us to not settle for the cliches, to not settle for simple answers to complicated pain, 
but to partner with God to invest in this community. To say, I choose to be inspired by love towards my brothers and sisters, and I choose to speak truth into fear. So my prayer is that we would be the kind of church that could manifest that Shekinah presence of God in our relationships and that we could encourage people in deep places and bring freedom where God wants to bring freedom. Amen? Amen. Amen. So would you stand with me? And as we do, I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come forward. uh, if you have any prayer what, uh, needs whatsoever that you could use prayer for, if there's a place of discouragement, if there is a place that it feels like there's no freedom from, these folks would love to pray with you. And if you've never been introduced to this God who says, I want to inspire you with love and I want to direct my encouragement towards your fear, they would love to introduce you to this God. So as you go, May you be encouraged to the overflowing and may you share that with others and in the midst of however it shows up, may we be the kind of people that expect God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Have a good day. Hey, everybody. Paul Eddy here again. Remember? I don't like that. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Paul Eddy here again. Remember that if you're willing to consider signing up to become a sustainer, Just go to whchurch.org slash sustain. We really appreciate it.